0: The wind screamed in lower Manhattan, like a banshee tearing through the Scottish Highlands. Friday, October 13th, the spookiest day of the year. Bubba Manjang pulled his stocking hat down over his ears, preparing for a long night of selling cotton candy outside of the Marlboro and Camel filtered cigarette stadium.
1: Those thousands of people coming up the elevators to stadium land. The stadium concourse in the sky. course it was so windy 600 feet up in between all those buildings everybody got out of the elevator and immediately fell over us real new yorkers wore lead shoes so we were fine but my cotton candy cart was just spewing cotton candy into the sky
0: what do you mean your machine was just spewing cotton candy into the sky
1: what can you not hear me are my headphones working hello hello
0: no, I was just asking you to elaborate on what you said.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. The wind was blowing so fast, I was worried my machine was going to get blown out in the street. So I threw my body on top of it to prevent that from happening. But I forgot to turn the machine off, and the candy was blowing out of it. And then rain would smack it to the ground like the hand of God. So there was soggy cotton candy floating under the sewers. I hopped off it for one second. I mean one second, because I thought I saw Farrah Fawcett in the cab. The second I did, my machine blew away. And I never saw it again. How far did it go, Bubba? Hello? Can you hear me? I got new headphones for this interview. Hello?
0: That was Bubba Manjang describing firsthand his experience with the New York windstorm of October '79 and that windstorm would give us the longest game in World Series history. The Marlboro Camel Stadium was not exactly the most convenient fit in the middle of the Wall Street skyline. Lots of carts fell during storms, and many fans who weren't from the immediate vicinity of the lower Manhattan area saw a trip to the park as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to litter on or vandalize Wall Street offices. Hot dogs thrown into windows, rocks through windows, peeing into windows, nothing was off limits. And the big Wall Street companies couldn't do anything about it? The mafia liked it too much. In Ricky the Weasel's autobiography, he says Carmine Gambino once had a contest where he said, whoever can piss into the highest up office at J.P. Morgan wins a Bentley. The stadium's nationwide reputation was for its right center field section, which was nicknamed the Boulevard of Broken Brokers. That's where Wall Street employees would commit suicide. It happened so frequently that the city of lower Manhattan asked Carmine Gambino to put up suicide nets, to which Carmine replied, no, that's a homicide spot, Paisan. So I'm having a really hard time visualizing this stadium that's in the air. Yeah, of course, I understand. And it's not a particularly intuitive place. The stadium was sketched by Carmine Gambino on a series of bar napkins. You basically had to walk down fire escapes to get to the concession stands, which were in converted offices, and they just handed you fries out the window the bathroom situation was very chaotic. Instead of your traditional bathroom, Marlboro Camel just had porta-potties placed seemingly at random throughout the stadium, along with a 200-foot trough located two stories underneath home plate. We called it Piss City, and the urine was funneled down a slide that circled around the building and led to the Hudson River. So tell me what it was like to go to a game. Oh, Marlboro Camel was a very violent place. The mafia condoned it, how could they not? And then you gotta factor in Lower Manhattan's population. Yeah, who was going to the games? Well, the casual suburban fan like myself had to basically fall in with one of the two factions in the stadium. The population of Lower Manhattan has for a long time been 50% Wall Street psychos and 50% the Chinese. And did these two groups not get along? (laughs) No! They were basically gangs on opposite sides of the stadium, and they had turf wars constantly. You see, the Chinese resented the bankers and stockbrokers for driving up rents in lower Manhattan and forcing them out of many sections of the area to build new offices. And the Wall Street guys resented the Chinese for being Chinese. But they were both there because they loved the Gambinos. Eh, I guess. I mean, the main thing was that it was close and you could drink and fight there. What about the police? Oh, there was basically no police presence. In fact, the only cops that were ever there were the ones that were secretly on the Gambinos' payroll. I don't know how the NYPD never figured that out. They could have put that thread together and found out who every crooked cop was pretty much immediately. As for the field itself, it was very cramped. The right field fence was about 310 feet away from home plate to make room for Carmen Gambino's luxury section, a replica of his favorite beach in Palermo with sand and water in a small cliff. The size of the field hardly mattered from preventing home run balls, of course, due to the usually high winds that were truly dangerous the night of Game 3. Before the game, the Gambinos said, This wind will make our pitches go like 200 miles per hour. That was Gambino's manager, Buddy Dwyer. We should talk about Buddy Dwyer. Buddy Dwyer was ahead of his time as a baseball mind. He was the father of what's known today as sabermetrics, but back then was just called trying to make everyone else look bad. It was his idea to use math to keep track of stats. As he said in a later interview, They said I was a fucking lunatic.
2: And I just said it's math. Look at the numbers. And that's when Tommy Lasorda took a swing at me.
0: Buddy Dwyer never intended to work in baseball. He first worked as a low-level stockbroker at Goldman Sachs until he was 32, with only a passing interest in the sport. I never went to many ball games. A lot of guys I worked with loved it, though. They loved baseball. And they loved
2: fighting the Chinese.
0: But on a fateful, drunken night at a bar in Lower Manhattan, Buddy bent the ear of Ricky the Weasel.
2: I remember it was a Saturday because I had just left the taping over at 30 Rock. And I run into this guy, talking about baseball like we talked about how many drugs we sold or who was paying for dinner. Add this, subtract that, that and that equals this. It was brilliant. The next day I says to Mr. Gambino, I says, Carmine, this is a guy from the banks. He says he can do bank stuff during baseball. And I think that means that we could be good at this now.
0: The very next day, Buddy Dwyer was announced as the manager of the Gambinos. A Sports Illustrated headline by a longtime baseball writer read, Baseball is dead now. Later that week on Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase played a version of Buddy Dwyer as a robot that pooped out baseballs and money.
2: Beep, boop, beep, boop. Have some of my baseball poop. (laughs) Strike! Cannot compute. I am out of
0: baseball poop. SNL was so good back then. Buddy went right to work assembling the new look Gambinos. His philosophy was pitchers do the most things in a game, so you should sign pitchers first. And the bullpen he crafted was possibly one of the best ever. First, I signed
2: Bob Crosby. Then, I traded a couple picks to Milwaukee, got Rick Stills. A year later, we drafted Mel. Mel Nash was a ninth rounder, pretty good value. And yeah, we went to Korea right after that. Picked up Park Ki-Hyung on our second
0: day there. Pretty easy. And that's how Dwyer assembled Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Hyung, a legendary foursome that owned the back half of games, including game three. Hi, I'm Nate from A Closer Look. Normally, right now, we'd present an innovative product or exciting service. But today, we're here about something more serious. Oh, Nate, are we recording? I was preparing a hot dog. Oh no, I got mustard all over my jeans. The average dude in this country owns exactly two pairs of pants. And sure, dudes like me and Will could go to the store and buy jeans, but we just don't. And we always get stains on things. Nate, what am I going to do? What about your second pair of pants? You mean the slightly nicer and vaguely blue, black, or brown pants? Dudes call this the fancy pair. I spilled Cholula sauce on them while I was making eggs for the ninth day in a row. Now I don't have any pants to wear to my job as a lawyer, and I might get fired. That's why this week's sponsor of A Closer Look is A Third Pair of Pants, a charity that connects struggling dudes with third pairs of pants. Because, under America's for-profit healthcare system, the average American dude is two stains away from having to go to work in basketball shorts. Well, Nate, I went to my lawyer job in basketball shorts and my client got the death penalty. And did you go to a pants store? No. Why not? Just cuz. $2 a month can buy one of these wretched dudes some jeans that they would never decide to buy on their own. And with a $20 donation, you can help one of our crisis dudes, men who have gotten stains on their basketball shorts and have to walk around wearing only a barrel like the Great Depression. I'm donating today. No dude will ever again have to wear a barrel in the soup line. A Closer Look podcast is matching donations to a third pair of pants for the rest of the day, up to about $7.50. Won't you help us clothe these poor dudes? The players for the Gambinos saw Game 3 as a life-or-death situation, mostly because Ricky the Weasel told them that it was.
2: I walked in a locker room with a baseball bat, and I said, look at me, you motherfuckers, and they didn't pay me much mind, because I was holding a baseball bat in a baseball locker room, and that's not particularly out of place or menacing. Plus, I was wearing a Gambinos jersey, so I think they thought I was just another member of the team. So I says, this time to myself, not out loud, I says, I got to get these guys to look at me. So I hit myself in the head with a bat about a dozen times. And I said, that's what I'm going to do to you if you don't win the game. And then I took a nap.
0: Both teams were forced to rely on their bottom of the rotation starting pitchers. The pickers, due in part to the injury to ace Colby Bryant, had to start Mervyn Rumford. Mervin Rumford played for my team, your team, and a lot of terrible teams. He was a 34-year-old career journeyman who loved to drink, and claimed that he did his best pitching when he was more hungover than a Gila monster. The Reverend's no-sinning policy got in the way of this, and the Brethren constantly followed Mervyn around and hid in his house on nights before he was supposed to pitch. But in the World Series, the pitching rotation changed, and Mervyn's drinking schedule and his pitching schedule finally synced up. According to accounts, when he saw the lineup, he thought that Gus Durango and Felix Navidad were playing a prank on him. When he found out it was real, he quietly barfed into his hand before yelling, Hell yeah! The Gambinos, across the diamond, were planning to start their own eccentric pitcher. Thanks to Scooter Mandela, this would become known as the Cummy Sock Game.
2: Scooter Mandela was a good pitching option, but a real freak.
0: Well, Scooter Mandela was odd. He had a very specific pregame ritual that involved a bottle of canola oil, a dozen Playboy magazines, and a special sock. Fellas, you know the one. But before game three, the wind outside blew his window open, knocked one of his game socks out of his bag, and blew his special sock into his bag. He didn't get the chance to change it before Buddy Dwyer was screaming at him to get out of the locker room. And so, 35 years before Kurt Schilling's famous bloody sock game, Scooter Mandela went out to pitch wearing the crustiest sock in MLB history. Gambino's second baseman, Francis Bypok, said years later in an article about the Cummy Sock game, quote, I put a rubber glove on to touch that sock and it felt like snake skin.
3: Scooter Mandela is ready to pitch, although he seems to be scratching his right heel, pulling flakes off it. It must be eczema. I deal with eczema myself. In a cold climate, it can be terrible. Make no mistake, folks. It is a skin prison. As there's strike three.
2: Socks. Why's that one sock all brown and crusty? I swear that boy nutted in it.
0: Despite both pitchers' individual battles, they pitched outstanding games. The only hits in the first five innings came from bloopers that corkscrewed in the heavy winds.
2: And Opie White takes the one-two pitch and mashes it deep. He hit the absolute cover of that ball. My oh my, it drops into shallow center for a single.
0: After seven innings of shutout baseball by Scooter, Buddy Dwyer came out to the mound, took the ball, patted his pitcher on the butt and ordered him to go to the locker room and put that sock in a plastic bag and throw that plastic bag into the piss city trough. Thank God he didn't, because now that sock is in Cooperstown. Mervyn Rumford had subtle streaks of vodka cran puke running down his picker's jersey, as he too put in a gem. He threw eight innings of shutout baseball, sending Mr. Clean down swinging on nine straight curveballs in the mud. Something was wrong with Mr. Clean. He didn't seem himself. He seemed upset meaning he was screaming double the volume as usual. It wasn't the weather, as he was used to that. The pitching was good, but he was strong from his trip to Yugoslavia. Some people suspected that he may have been having some sort of relationship issues, perhaps even an affair. But all we knew at that point was that the Mr. Clean of Game 1 had been seemingly replaced by an amateur wearing his humongous body.
3: Well, it's 0-0 here in the 8th inning. My type of game. Buddy Dwyer is bringing out the big guns and going with Crosby, Stills, potentially Nash, and potentially Young Should the game go to
0: 11? Should we be so lucky? And lucky they were. This was a signature game for the Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Hyung lineup. Each brought their own signature style and they were dealing. Crosby was a submariner. After eight innings of herky-jerky pitching from Scooter, Crosby's pitching arm getting about two inches off the ground bamboozled the pickers. And bamboozled the fans, too, who didn't understand how a human body could move that way. Here's Bob explaining to reporters at the time where he got it. I used to practice pitching in my mama's washroom. i stand outside and i throw it at the mattress on the wall. And then the flood came and uh, took my daddy away, and it made our land muddy. Uh, And then our whole house sunk about two feet into the ground. Suddenly, the only way for me to get the ball into the door was for me to pitch it real low to the ground. Crosby got three ground ball outs in the eighth and three more in the ninth. On Crosby's sixth out, Pickers batter Teddy Krunz charged the mound solely because he was pissed at how Crosby's arm moved. It took three Gambinos riding Krunz like a horse to slow him down. After Crosby came Ricky Stills. Stills was famous in the league for inventing the knuckleball due to his deformed throwing hand. Growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. Me and my
2: friends would play space in the yard. We figured we could send me to the moon and beat the Soviets ourselves. So we tied two of my hands to a string, tied that string to a firework, and I put on a bike helmet, held my breath, and he ripped two fingers off. We think the firework went to space.
0: Still sent down the best pickers hitters 1-2-3 in the 10th. In the 11th, Buddy Dwyer sent out Mel Nash, the hardest thrower in the league. Mel Nash had a 100 mile per hour fastball that he could throw maybe six times a game tops. He only ever pitched an inning at most because every at bat was incredibly traumatic for him. The first time I hit 100 miles per hour, I was thrown with my dad in the backyard. He said, let this one rip, son. I love you. I'm so proud of you. I threw it,
1: it busted through his glove and it hit him in the nuts. He had to get his whole unit removed. He never spoke to me again.
0: Nash gave Dwyer his one inning and then he sent him back out and then he sent him back out again. Three innings. Nash quit baseball shortly after to become a lobsterman in Maine. Park Ki-Hyung was the first Korean to play baseball in the major leagues. He actually learned the game from one of the all-time greats. From a translated interview he gave to Sports Illustrated for Kids, I learned how to play baseball from some guy named Ted Williams on a military base in Korea. I was throwing rocks at Americans and he said he liked my delivery. Eventually, I got so good at it that I beamed Ted Williams with rocks from 200 feet away. I hate Americans. Park took the 15th and the 16th innings. He dominated so much, he was able to bean a couple American hitters for fun and hold them at first. Meanwhile, the Pickers bullpen threw everything they had at these guys. Goose Durango, Liriano, and DSA Beauregard all went up and pitched the inning of their lives. Here's Ken Opener.
1: Well, Cedric realized pretty quick that the wind was going to just sit on every fly ball. So we tossed letter-high meatballs over and over, and who oh boy those Gambinos were strong. And they probably sent those meatballs about 150 feet before they landed on Saman Suleiman's head near second base. We didn't have to be good. They were. Don't know why.
0: Ken Opener was the closer, but he was the second-to-last pitcher left in the picker's bullpen, and what people thought was another classic Cedric entertainer move... That last reliever was never used, leaving Ken to pick up the four-inning save. The failure of the Gambino's bats to do anything and the fact that it was midnight led to some pretty tense altercations in the stands. How tense? Oh, there was a race war. You see, it was $5 hot dog night. $5? Well, $5 got you a hot dog with a ketchup packet, but instead of ketchup, cocaine. Eventually, the Wall Street guys and the Chinese guys would start getting into fights over by Piss City, and the winners would throw the losers down the trough. To their deaths? No, 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 unless you couldn't swim. Well, some people died, but that happened in the Hudson, so they died at the game, it's a gray area. All told, I think 38 people were hospitalized, and I think around 140 were thrown into the river. It's a good thing that the race war broke out, or the fans would have been pissed about what happened to the Gambinos. See, they ran out of good arms, and their bad arms sucked. Flip Valentini, Ernest Weed, and Bob the Big Bopper Schwab. You see, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were the best pitchers around, so this group was named after the worst trio in music, Rush. The first two pickers in the bottom of the 17th were walked by the Big Bopper Schwab. Schwab was in his 17th year in the league. He had a career 5.50 ERA, but managed to stay employed due to his good-natured ball-busting that made him a sought-after morale guy in locker rooms. Here's him at the Comedy Store in
1: 1974. (laughs) Yeah, I play baseball. I love having balls in my hands. Like the First Lady. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Why don't you laugh at sweetheart? She's probably thinking to herself, hey, I'm not the First Lady.
0: The big bopper bombed on the mound in Marlboro Camel, walking the first two batters he faced. When Buddy Dwyer came out to pull Schwab from the game, Schwab asked for a blindfold and cigarette before he was executed. Out next was Flip Valentini. Flip was a solid pitcher in the MLB, until a bad acid trip left him convinced that he was going to be killed by a line drive hit back at him. For four years, he ducked as he released the ball, causing him to lose nearly all of his velocity and control. But on the biggest stage, he decided he would face his fear. He wound up, delivered a fastball, stood up straight, and took a line drive to the temple. He was carted off the field, reportedly whispering, I was right, I was right. The runners were able to advance. That means the bases were loaded. And in came Ernest Weed, baseball's sweatiest man. He was so sweaty, it actually made him better. His inability to grip the ball caused his pitches to curve erratically, some nights making him unhittable, but most of the time it just led to him walking nearly every batter he faced. But this night he was good. He got swinging strikes on the slipperiest curveball this side of water polo. After two outs, pinch hitter Travis Barker blooped a fly ball into shallow right field. Here's the call.
3: Barker hit your pop-up. This half-inning is clearly over. Time for me to take a break. It seems as though I was wrong. The inning is not over. Mr. Clean did not catch the pop-up, I'm assuming because of the wind. He dropped it, and I guess the pickers
0: scored 2 nothing. Darn. A photographer captured the moment of the Mr. Clean Wind error. What do you see? He's not even looking at the ball. He's looking at Carmine Gambino's luxury beach. And who's on that beach? It's Carmine, and he's kissing his wife, Isabella. The bottom of the 17th was quick. Everyone thought the last pitcher would come out for the pickers, but nope. There was Ken Opener again, lobbing the meatballs and still getting those pop-ups. None of the pickers outfielders were distracted by Isabella Gambino. As soon as the game ended, everyone left. Sad, defeated, and out of cocaine. Even the players were desperate to get out of the wind. But questions lingered. Why was Mr. Clean so bad? What distracted him? And why didn't the pickers use their final bullpen arm? And the answer is because that man wasn't a pitcher at all. He was the man who killed Robert F. Kennedy. Next time on A Closer Look.